0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk, I'm Doug Dangler. Tess Gerritsen is the internationally best-selling author of medical thrillers. Her books have been translated into 37 languages and sold over 20 million copies. The Silent Girl is the ninth novel in the series that pairs homicide detective Jane Rizzoli with medical examiner Mara Isles. The series inspired the Rizzoli and Isles television show that recently began its second season on the TNT network. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Okay. Well, on your Facebook page, you claim multiple abilities. Quote, I'm a thriller writer, a fiddle player, a doctor, a mom, and a French fry lover. So let's start with the most obviously important French fries. <laughs> I'm
1: addicted to them everywhere I go. Okay. I, okay. Tried, I try new ones and I'm, I'm always cultivating new recipes.
0: So you don't make them yourself though. You You have to go out for this.
1: I eat and make them.
0: Okay, good. Does that make you popular at home, making the fries?
1: Uh, Yeah, when the kids come over.
0: Okay, (laughs) cool. Now, am I correct that the the fiddle playing is related to your having a tiger mom and dad? You mentioned this in a recent interview with the Columbus Dispatch, that you had tiger parents, um, the Asian parents who pushed you to excel.
1: I think uh, it's very common among Chinese American children that their parents expect them to play either the piano or the violin or some sort of a classical uh, mm-hmm. musical instrument. In my case, I learned the piano and the violin uh, classically, but as I got older and got exposed to Irish music, I became a fiddle player.
0: Okay, I was going to say you're moving away from the classical training by calling it a fiddle.
1: Right. It's so, it's all in the music you play.
0: Right. Okay. Good deal. You know, I confess when I read that, I, I pictured you mulling over a plot point and playing the fiddle like Sherlock Holmes does. <laughs> right when he's stuck, he'll play the fiddle. He's in your genre of uh, thrillers and that. So you began writing when you are on maternity leave, right? Not quite. Not quite I started writing. Then.
1: I wrote when I was seven years old. That was my first we... book. <laughs> I uh, guess that doesn't count.
0: Well, no, we'll count it. What was it about?
1: It was about my dad, cat. And I'm sorry. You're. My t- my poor cat that had just died, dead and I wrote cat. a whole novel. I think it was more of like a biography of my dead cat. Oh, okay. But um, I, I might, you know I told my father then I wanted to be a writer. Okay. And he said, there is no career to be made in the arts. You better choose something uh, much more practical, being the Chinese-American mm-hmm. father that he was. And that's how I got steered into medical school.
0: Okay. You're yeah, the second person today that has said that. I was asked uh, earlier by uh, somebody on a, a radio show that I was a guest on. Is there a career in the arts And with a PhD and uh, master's in English, which is, I guess... Part of the arts, I had to say. I really don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you about the humanities. I'm not. I may do the same thing with uh, my children that you're doing with yours, and saying maybe you should consider something outside <laughs> the humanities and the arts. But uh, so. You you started off at 7, you wrote about your dead cat, which wasn't uh, a medical thriller.
1: No, but it wasn't too far from the genre, oh, okay. was it?
0: <laughs> you didn't dissect the cat or anything before you wrote it? Uh, uh,
1: no, I didn't, but I did dissect a lot of dead animals that I found in the nearby canyon. I, I, I was I was already cutting things open and looking inside and trying to understand what made them tick, um, and I think that that part of my personality persists. It's probably uh, it probably expresses itself in one of my characters, Dr. Maura Isles, And yeah. that I I like to think there's a logical explanation for everything. Um, so I I you know my room probably wasn't very nice to visit because I had a lot of. Sliced open dead animals.
0: Did it. you preserve these animals or was this an abattoir? I mean, what was going on in this room? They were room? already
1: dead. They, I were, right,
0: they were already dead, but, you know, they do rot. They do pro-
1: rot, yes. And uh, I think I probably kept them to the point where they were unpleasant and then finally went and buried them.
0: Awesome. That's, that's uh, uh, f- for all you listening outside, this is going to be that kind of interview where we, uh, well, I mean, that's actually true in your books, though. I mean, there's a lot, there's some gruesome detail. Uh, in the books um, in in the most recent one the silent girl for example there's a there's some dismemberment and but you've got the background to get this medically accurate
1: yes I guess I say they are anatomically correct <laughs> um, and and there is some some gruesomeness involved but mm-hmm. you know I, I do draw a line and I try not to show violence on the page very often I, right. I don't like it myself and most of the time the gore that you see will be in the process of either the police or the medical examiner doing their jobs. To me that's a lot less upsetting because you're seeing somebody coming in and and having a responsibility and doing the right thing and trying to do the right thing. You don't see the suffering on the page. Right.
0: So do you keep up with that? Do you keep up with medical journals now to see if there are any new forensic techniques? I mean, you talk about, I think it's called luminol in the book, which seems to have been a new technique from the time that one Murder occurred to the time that it's reinvestigated?
1: Yes. I have, uh, I'm a subscriber to the journal Forensic Sciences. I do attend uh, pathology journals, uh, forensic pathology um, meetings. Uh, we have a very good one up in Maine. Uh, and I have a huge library of textbooks. Plus, I have friends I can always call. So, this this is
0: just the adult version of the room with the decaying cats.
1: Yes, it smells you- much better. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. so. Um, how long did you go uh, that you were writing, uh, that you were a uh, a practicing uh, physician? And uh, were you a medical examiner in the same way that uh, IELTS is?
1: No, my specialty uh, was internal medicine. So I was dealing with with living patients.
0: Patients, one hopes, yes. One
1: hopes, yes. But as a medical student, I mean, just learning when you get through your medical degree, you have probably witnessed about A dozen or more autopsies during your training. So, I, you know, the autopsy room is not unfamiliar to me. Um, I can say that, you know, cutting open dead animals who you don't know is one thing, but watching an autopsy of, say, one of your patients who you failed, who died, Mm -hmm. that's a very, very upsetting um, experience. It's quite different. And it's one of the things that made me think I don't think I have the heart to be a forensic pathologist.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I'm also sort uh, of—I didn't know that physicians would attend the autopsies of 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 their own patients.
1: Well, we are encouraged to because we were told if you if your patient dies, you want to know what happened. You Mm -hmm. want to know what you missed.
0: But you could get that from the report.
1: You can. But um, we were always encouraged to to see firsthand the pathology, you know, the disease process.
0: That's uh, that's a tough medical school. Well, I think
1: it's very tough um, because you may have been talking to that person 24 hours earlier.
0: Yeah, that seems... Well, um, do you miss that? Do you miss the hands-on medical?
1: Um, I miss that part of it. What I don't miss uh, are the hours, <laughs> mm-hmm. the incredible sense of responsibility, the feeling that if you make a mistake, someone's life will be lost. Um, that is not easy to deal with. For I mean, a lot of people cannot handle that.
0: Right. So tell me about the switch then. Um, is uh, that when you were then on Maternity Libre? Then you started writing more, uh, less about the dead cats and yes. about
1: people. Well, I went on maternity leave because I was a new, you know, newly married and we wanted mm-hmm. children and my children, my, my two sons, to uh, my great delight, were both very good nappers. Yeah. So I would put them down, they'd sleep for three hours straight. And I thought, now's my chance to go back to do what I really wanted to do,
0: which was tell stories. Okay. How long did you do that before you decided to make a, you know, the break and become the author? and and then? I guess my follow-up is going to be, did you have to tell your parents that?
1: <laughs> well, uh, my, as far as my parents knew, I was just on maternity leave. Um, but I, I think it was after I sold my first book uh, and I realized I can make some money at this. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can stay home for a while. Uh, the other issue was that it was very hard juggling two careers. My husband is a doctor as well. And there were times when we'd both be called into the hospital late at night. Hmm. What do you do with your sleeping two-year-old? What do
0: you do with your sleeping two-year-old? You bring <laughs> them to
1: the hospital with you. You pull them out of their cribs. You bring them, you, you hand them hopefully to a nurse and say, will you watch my son while I go in and see this patient? Oh. That, that after a while became so anxiety provoking that um, uh, we made a family decision that I would stay home for a while until the kids got to kindergarten, at least. You
0: said oh, after a while. I would think that would be immediately anxiety.
1: <laughs> uh, they were about two years there where we were still juggling things, mm-hmm. and um, I, I understand completely the stresses of working women.
0: Okay, so uh, then then did you have to actually? inform your parents after, at some point, you've decided to do what they didn't want you to do.
1: It, it's funny, I think my parents both felt it was okay because I had the degree and I okay. and I had the job and I could go back to it at any time.
0: So that's the point at which you said, I'm now a writer, I'm not a physician, I'm a writer. How, how, what, how long did that switch take or was it immediately upon the sale of the first book? It,
1: it was when I got my first <laughs> advance check, I think.
0: <laughs> so again, signing your name, comma, writer. And right, that replaces yes. uh, MD, okay. I, before your best-selling medical thriller, Harvest, you wrote romantic suspense novels, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me about uh, writing in that genre, because I'd like to contrast that to writing into sort of the murder genre, the, the, yes. the medical thriller genre.
1: All genres are difficult. And I, you know, it, it annoys me sometimes when people sort of laugh scornfully at romance novels. Mm -hmm. My books were 50% romance and 50% mystery. So it was that that balance you were always trying to, you know, to keep exciting. The Wonderful thing about romance writing is that it teaches you immediately to focus on character. That is really where romance is all about. I mean, who are this? Who is this man and who is this woman and why do they fall in love? Mm-hmm. So you need to know who these people are. That I think gave me a very good foundation for the genres that I would write later.
0: Okay. You say who is this man, who is this woman? It's so it's the explanation, exploration of character. But what as a writer did you how did you have to, to change? Is it just, okay, I'm going to write about the character and imagine why this character has this background? What? How did that play out for you?
1: You know, developing characters is a very mysterious process for me, and it's 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 difficult no matter what I write, mm-hmm. and I still have the issue of of trying to understand who these people are. Um, very often, I well, I think of it the way I do meeting somebody I've never met before. For instance, you know, I'm meeting you now, and what I, what do I know about you beyond you know your general physical appearance, your 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 gender, your race, your approximate age it um, 26 especially <laughs> where going. but if I were to spend time with you months and months and months with you and get and have more conversations I would get to know you eventually as mm-hmm. as a person as who you really are who you present yourself to be anyway that's the way it is with a book character. I know the basics about them, and it's only after I've written that first draft that I really get to know them. So, so the first draft is my exploration of who these people are. What do you,
0: I mean, so let's walk through, say, Rizzoli. Okay. Um, you have somebody here, the character, who is a policewoman, mm-hmm. and in the books, I think you've said that you take sort of pains to not have made her a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she gets cast, <laughs> with, with you know Angie Harmon, yes. right? So, uh, which uh, you said in a recent interview, how do you not make her beautiful? But you went to these pains to say this character is defined in part by her physicality, by who yes. she is, and she's also defined by her gender because she talks in this book about being a female mm-hmm. um, in a largely male-dominated um, area, and I think actually both characters go through that, if, if I'm not mistaken, in this book. So. What, how did you write into that in the beginning? What were the traits that you said, this is what I'm going to hang my hat on and say that's what defines her?
1: My first impression of Jane Rizzoli, and I, and I have to admit I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about her because I thought of her as a sacrificial victim. She was going to die before the end of that first book. I mean, that, was how I, that was my plan for her. Um, and I think my shorthand for Jane when she walked on was outsider. She is the outsider, and she is struggling, and she's been struggling all her life to be accepted, number one, because she isn't attractive. And for women, I think you know, attract physical attractiveness, how we look to the world, uh, is very important to us. So that would be an integral part of her personality, that she feels unattractive. And the other part is that she's working in a boy's profession. Uh, she's the only woman in the homicide unit. That's what I thought about Jane from the beginning, and I thought an outsider and probably angry. She has a lot of anger in her in that first Mm -hmm. book, which comes out as as bitchiness. Um, A lot of people don't like Jane, a lot of readers don't like Jane, but I understood where that came from. It was all anger.
0: Mm -hmm. Do You say you understood where that came from because being in in a medical field, and a lot of times, that's a, a male-dominated. Um, was that something that you had experienced, or no, is that just a different? Sort? I think
1: the outsider status that I understand comes more from my race. Okay,
0: from uh, being as you from said, being the only Chinese. The only student. Chinese
1: kid in my elementary school, mm-hmm. and not being uh, what was considered the classically beautiful, uh, or the you know what was accepted as beauty in American culture, mm-hmm. which is you know Caucasian features. So I've always felt the outsider in terms of what you know how Jane feels um, physically, maybe overlooked. Um, Um, And maybe not considered the girl that you would ask out for a date, because I wasn't like everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I was just tapping into my own, I think my own childhood experiences when I wrote her. And maybe that's why she came across so vividly and so easily for me.
2: You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with Doug Dangler and guest Tess Gerritsen, author of the novels that are the basis for the Rizzoli and Isles television series on TNT. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and the Ohio Channel. You can see some of our interviews by visiting ohiochannel.org or by checking your local television listings for broadcast times. Now back to Doug's talk with Tess and the unusually abrasive nature of some of her characters.
0: A couple times as I was reading this, I thought, "Well, this is a really spiky character." There are some of the exchanges where they're just really spiky, and I thought that's an interesting take because a lot of times in the books, the the in, in sort of um, in some genre novels, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. I just mean that there are certain things you sort of expect in in this uh, that they're going to be a little bit more um, likable as mm-hmm. a character, and they're going to be a little bit more, you know, playful or fun, which No disrespect intended to the TNT, but they've they've lightened up the characters, I think. Yes, they have. And, uh, you know, which is probably necessary for television or something like that because, so uh, so tell me about then your reaction to that um, as an author. On the one hand, you sit back and say, you know, it's going in a different um, medium. Let it do what it does. On the other hand, you say, these are my
1: favorites. Well, my babies are very dark. <laughs> In the books, are very dark. One one is Jane, who's a bitch, or or at least has a chip on her shoulder, and the other is Maura, who has some very deep, dark secrets and um, is, is uh, you know quite a gloomy character. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the change into television, well, I, it took me a while to get used to it. Um, first mm-hmm. of all, Angie Harmon's beauty uh, goes against the outsider status, but they what they have done with her though is I, I think they chose Angie partially because she has the right personality for that part. She she captures that grittiness of Jane Rizzoli perfectly. Um, we just have to overlook the fact that she's, she's beautiful. <laughs> um, what they've done most uh, in changing the story is, is more isles. They have made her much more innocent, uh, certainly a lot sunnier character, a lot softer character, because their intention from the beginning, and I was told this um, by the producers, they wanted to focus on this friendship. They wanted these two Mm. women to bond. Uh, They do bond in the books, but it takes them a good four or five books before they become friends. Mm -hmm.
0: And even in this book, I wouldn't. I walked into this having, mm-hmm. you know, heard about the and Isles, the TV series first, and then I thought, oh, cool, I'll read the book. And then I thought, well, it, I was surprised. I've mm-hmm. got to say because I thought I had um, more like a buddy mm-hmm. um, picture in mind when I went into the books. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, they they get along, but they also have fight. Yes. Um, and there are there are problems. Of course, the, these characters actually seem to fight quite a bit with most people around them. As yeah. you said, they're a little bit dark, with the exception of maybe Rat for example, one of the other characters who I think softens up, oddly, although he's not a particularly soft character, softens up, um, Dr. Isles. Yes.
1: Um, I think that the the friendship that you see in the books is is very layered and it's very complex mm-hmm. uh, because these two women are so different. Uh, Jane is a blue-collar cop person and Maura is, uh, comes from a, uh, a wealthier family. She comes from a highly educated family. Uh, she's actually taken... Her educational CV comes from mine. Uh, mm-hmm. We're both we both anthropology st- students in Stanford who went on to medical school in San Francisco. You would not expect these two women to be friends normally. They are thrown together because of their jobs because of the stresses that they have to deal with. Their friendship grows out of mutual respect um, for each other's Skills. It does not come out of any instantaneous uh, chemistry, uh, which makes their friendship also very wrought sometimes. Because mm-hmm. it's easy to split that apart, and, and it doesn't take much. Uh, in *The Silent Girl*, um, there is a conflict that arises because of professional issues,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I can see these two women flying off, you know, in different directions possibly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what do you when you say something like that? out of curiosity, if you've said something like that to your publisher, do they flinch in their chair, <clears throat> do they in their chair and they say, wait, they're going to go off in different directions? What, are we are just going to have a Rizzoli book, just an Isles book? How are you going to do that? <laughs>
1: oh, I, no, I don't mean they're going to go off in different directions and, and just have one or the other. Okay. I think that there may be, they, they may have a falling out for a while, but I think mm-hmm. that the fact they both respect each other as, as co-workers um, is always going to bring them back together.
0: So that comment suggests to me that uh, unlike some authors who've got this arc Right? They, they know the beginning, the middle, the end. You don't necessarily have that arc for these characters.
1: I never had an arc. I never had a plan. I, I never know what's going to happen to them until I sit down and write the book. Uh, and and you know, as I said, Jane was supposed to die in that first now, book. What
0: happened? Why? What's the reprieve?
1: Um, the reprieve was that I got to know her. Okay. And by the end of the book, I understood why she
0: was a bitch? Did you kill somebody else to make no, up for it? I, I
1: actually <laughs> just didn't kill her.
0: You didn't kill her. <laughs> she okay.
1: survived. She survived the scene that where she was supposed to die. It was towards the end, and mm-hmm. I, I think most people will know what it is when right, they read that. Right, because she carries
0: search. on. That gets mentioned in this book. And she carries on with the, um, the, the scars from that scene.
1: Right, and I thought I found that I identified with her. I, I would be. Beca- maybe it was more on a on a more conscious level. I realized who she was that she was a version of me she she had some of my characteristics and and i liked her
0: what now how many characters have you had that where you thought okay this is a version of me or it's this Splinter of my personality that I'm going to amplify for this particular thing. Is that how characters yeah, arise?
1: I think it's it's funny. These two women probably are two aspects of, of my character. Uh, Mora much more like me than than Jane. Jane is sort of Jane encapsulates some of the anger I had when I was a child, uh, mm-hmm. or certainly growing up as a, as an adolescent. And Mora is the logical, scientific
0: side of me that
1: I think is in control right now. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, when you're writing, you never know what part of your id is going to come out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you showed the books to people you knew after you had read them, did they comment on that? Uh, no, nobody has. Okay.
1: Nobody. So. Uh, although people do um, people do guess that I am or Iles.
0: Right. That one seems obvious. Right. Right. But the other one. So um, what aspect, uh, I'm curious to follow that down some more. You say, you know, she's working class. You don't identify with that aspect. You identify with the anger aspect. Does that... How long do you think that continues to resonate for you as an author as you, you know, work through this? Are you always going to have that well? Is that something I, I you're I think I'm with? always,
1: I'm still working through it. And uh, yeah, you'll notice when you, I mean, if people read the series, they'll notice that once Jane gets married and has a child in the books mm-hmm. and she becomes happier that that anger that that you know that anger that started her off that promoted her into the stratosphere of her career um has dissipated somewhat but it is always going to be a little engine in there and okay. and in certain situations it's going to come out
0: all right now in the new book you introduce a chinese-american detective johnny tam yes and uh, you, you've said that this is more personal mm-hmm. for you because it reflects your asian-american heritage yes. does this mean that uh and this is a, a a character with secrets, yes, um, that are hinted at pretty heavily at the end. Yes. Um, is this a character that you're going to be exploring, or is this? I, a, I would a, a like
1: rush? to. Um, Johnny Tam says the things that I think. Uh, there are a couple of conversations he has with, with Jane, which reveal that he, he feels the same way that I did. He feels like the outsider. He mm-hmm. feels like he's stereotyped. Um, he gets tired of being called a geek. He says, you know, we're, I, I can hear Johnny Tam saying, you know, we're not all geeks. Some of us are stupid. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that he, um, he is able to express um, the experiences of being a, mm-hmm. a very visible minority, the mm-hmm. sense of... of collective guilt, the sense of collective shame we have when somebody in our community commits a crime. We all feel like we're guilty, uh, which is completely unreasonable, but there it is.
0: Yeah. Which I, I was reflecting on that as I read the book because there's a, 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 a Chinese character who commits a crime and as you said, they all, the whole community feels shame for it. And I thought yeah. that's really fascinating because, you know, the, that doesn't translate to many other cultures, to say the, if, if there is a white character that commits a crime, the white community doesn't take mm-hmm. on that mantle. But what it made me think of is you've been translated into 37 languages you
1: know. How is that going to play in China? (laughs) How does this
0: play in other places? Do you have discussions with your readers to say, you know, what did you think of this?
1: I don't know, it hasn't come out yet I mean it hasn't been translated yet, still just in English, but I am curious about how how Chinese will feel. I think it has more to do not with the Asian culture but with the minority culture because I have talked to African-Americans who say when a horrible crime is committed they will all squint and say please don't let him be black. Mm -hmm. They feel the same way because we all feel that something that one of us does reflects on the rest of us.
0: Okay. In um, an interview with the Columbus Dispatch, you, as you've said before, aligned your character, yourself with your character, um, medical examiner, Iles. Mm -hmm. And you said, quote, we're both pretty reserved. I would be happy sitting in my office, never talking to anybody. Now, I see that as a useful trait as an author. Mm -hmm. But it also seems like it's a problem for an author because when you develop these characters, they can't all be splinters of yourself. Yes. So, you know, for example, there's an alcoholic cop in here that they go to every now and then for uh, sort of guidance, I guess. Yes, I'm not sure <laughs> if you can call it that, but for at least information. Yes. And, you know, that sort of reticence to be in public seems to me to, in some ways, be at odds with being a writer.
1: Um, well, I think there's a difference between real interaction with real people and sitting in your office and having interactions with imaginary people. That's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Most of us, I mean, we, I think that a lot of writers probably deep down are actors in some way. We are able to get, crawl into the minds of our characters. Um, and it's fun to explore and meet people who don't exist but who
0: are completely different from us. So are you the kind of author that you, you write and then you perform it back? To yes, the screen. I do. Okay, I,
1: I perform it back to
0: myself. So, okay, so do you then need a uh, when you go with the the room of one's own? It has to be soundproofed.
1: It has or to be. Are they used to
0: it in your family?
1: I don't want people nearby because they'll hear me talking to myself.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, what are you working on now? Let's
1: I'm working on the uh, the next book in the Rosaline Isle series, um, and it takes place in a very weird private school
0: in Maine. <laughs> where strange are there things- Are any <laughs> normal private schools? There was a the private school here that wasn't weird, but it was the locus in some ways of, yes. of problems. Yes. Uh, so so private schools are the problem for you.
1: Well, this this one is going to be where Rat, the, the, the teenage boy Rat is attending. Okay. Um, and so he's up there in this private school. And Maura goes to visit him, because she sort of almost feels like her his adoptive mother. Mm-hmm. And when she gets there, realizes something so, things are bad that are happening
0: up there in the in the even song school. Okay, so it's going to be Rizzoli and Isles and Rat.
1: And Rat, yes, and the crew of adolescents.
0: Now, um, you've got a blurb on this one uh, from Lee Child. It says, suspense doesn't get any smarter than this, not just recommended but mandatory, which is uh, very nice. Um, he's a former Writer's Talk guest, by the way, Writer's Talk. Is he somebody you follow? Is is Lee Child somebody you... you you know, you read his books as soon as they come out, and say, "Okay, here's an interesting thing he did here. I might pick up." You some know,
1: I, there are such a large number of writers that I, I think all of us writers follow each other. We know each other very, very well because we see each other at the same conferences, or or we have the same editor, or agent. Um, Lee is one of those people, and I know you've had some previous um, authors here uh, who uh, who I also follow: Kristen Hanna, Lisa Gardner. Um, not only are we friends, we are professional admirers of each other.
0: Okay. But not professional jealousy to say, oh, that one went really well. How do I get that going? <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's it's not jealousy so much as, whoa, I, I, I'm so admiring of that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could have done that. And, I, and I, I find myself saying that quite a bit when I read a an ex- exceptionally good book.
0: Okay. So what's on your nightstand right now?
1: My what, nightstand right now is um, I'm reading a book that's called Turn of Mind. And it's about a um, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the author. Uh, it was handed to me by a bookstore owner and said, you have to read this. It's about a woman who may have committed a murder, but she has Alzheimer's and she cannot remember.
0: Okay. So that might show up later. Another medical, is, that, is it a medical thriller? From those um, it I think ways? I
1: would call it more literary. It, it's a, the most terrifying book I've ever read because of the Alzheimer's issue. I think we're all terrified of losing our capacity and that, that plays into every fear.
0: Okay. The last question I have is you publish a new book pretty much every year. Um, So you've got to have a pretty established writing process. What constitutes a good day of writing for you, besides talking back to the screen?
1: (laughs) A good day of writing is uh, four pages of uh, brand new prose. I mean, four pages. And um, I think that what puts me, what makes me a little different from other authors is the process. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't outline, I don't know where the story's going, I know where it starts, Mm -hmm. Um, and I write my first drafts
0: always with pen and paper. I was going to ask, longhand or computer? You, longhand. Four four pages longhand.
1: On, and it must be on unlined typing paper.
0: Why online typing? paper? Um,
1: I find the lines distract me, and I, <laughs> it's and it's really funny. But you know, the process is so important. It's important that once you get something that works, to stick with it. Uh-huh. I like the unlined typing paper because I can
0: write big or small, and I can write sideways. Oh wait a minute! If you write big. You get out four pages, you write very large, and you say, I'm done for the well, day.
1: Well, I know, but I, I'm sort of making that calculation in my head. Well, that's a big one. Well, this is, I'll have to write smaller the next time. But I, it, it almost is if when the writing is going really well and it's going really fast, I will tend to write bigger because you're just more flamboyant when things are working mm-hmm. well. Um, and when you're writing small, it's, it seems to be more thoughtful, something that takes me a little bit wi- a while to
0: I think we need to have examples of your drafts <laughs> to follow this through. You know, say, oh, she's writing small here. It must I know, have been difficult. I know. Well,
1: you know, luckily, nobody can read my handwriting, so you wouldn't be able to <laughs> Well, tell. you're a doctor, That's right, right. So, exactly. Right, it's, it's like
0: uh, prescription pads <laughs> right. all over the place. When you do that, though, when you're you're writing it, do you have to hand that off to somebody? You you have to do it yourself, though. I type it myself. You type it yourself. Because right. nobody can read my handwriting. Because nobody, is <laughs> it seems like uh, it makes it somewhat inefficient.
1: Absolutely, It's totally inefficient and I would not recommend it to anybody, okay. but after 23 books I've tried typing first drafts on and clearly successful um, I find that put, putting the first draft on a computer screen compels me to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite the first paragraph okay. I never get beyond that so it's okay. it's important not to see the flaws of your manuscript until you finish the entire first draft Only then do I know what the story is about.
0: Excellent advice. Tess Gerritsen. Thank you very much for being here on Writer's Talk.
2: You've been listening to Writer's Talk with guest Tess Gerritsen. For more about Tess and other Writer's Talk guests, visit writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel. For signed books and DVDs of select Writer's Talk interviews, visit the Writer's Talk section of The Ohio State University Bookstore. Join us again next week to hear OSU alumnus Joshua J., author of best-selling books about magic. It will make your summer blues disappear. Until then, this is Ashley Miller for Writer's Talk. Keep writing.